Hello everyone, I'm Daniel Bryant and I'd like to welcome you to the Ambassador Living on the Edge podcast, the show that focuses on all things related to cloud native platforms, creating effective developer workflows, and building modern APIs. Today I'm joined by Gene Kim, author, researcher, and all-around DevOps expert. Now I'm going to assume that Gene really needs no introduction to the listeners of this podcast, but just in case you haven't bumped into his work, he is a multiple award-winning CTO and researcher and author of six books, which include personal favorites of mine, The Unicorn Project and The Phoenix Project. Gene is also the founder of IT Revolution and hosts a very successful DevOps Enterprise Summit, which I've attended both in London and in San Francisco. In fact, the next summit will be held as a virtual event, 23rd, 25th of June. I thoroughly encourage you to attend. If you like what you hear today on the podcast, I would definitely encourage you to pop over to our website. That's www.getambassador.io, where we have a range of articles, white papers, and videos that provide more information for engineers working in the Kubernetes and cloud space. You can also find links there to our latest releases, such as the Ambassador Edge stack, and also our open source Ambassador API Gateway, and our CNCF hosted telepresence tool too. Hello, Gene, and welcome to the podcast. Daniel, I'm so happy to be here. And we have so many friends in common. And I never quite connected the dots that you've been at DataWire for three years. This is so <laughs> exciting. Super, super. So just to set a bit of context for the listeners, Gene, could you share a recent career highlight? Now, I know you're involved in books, conferences, advising. I'm guessing you've got a lot of career highlights to choose from, but just something to give a bit of context for where you're coming from. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I've been studying high-performing technology organizations for 20 years, and I uh, wrote the book called The Phoenix Project with the co-authors and, and so forth. But yeah, a recent career highlight was just uh, last week when I wrote a, a blog post called Love Letter to Conferences. And as part of that was really trying to crystallize my own thinking in terms of what made the most memorable and meaningful conference experiences great and which parts are universal, whether physical or virtual, and which ones uh, you know could actually be modified in a virtual format to make them better. And uh, as part of that... I actually gathered 10 years of conference photos <laughs> and it was uh, over 700 photos and posted a, a big JPEG image that's 11,000 pixels uh, tall. <laughs> and uh, I got a little tearful just uh, looking at some of those photos, uh, just about how great it was to meet fellow travelers and kindred spirits on a common journey. And uh, just reminds me of uh, how much now that we're going to two months of sheltering in place, just how much we miss in-person physical conferences. So that was a kind of a, a highlight that it yeah, looks back over 10 years. Yeah, that blog post is fantastic. I'll be sure to link it in the show notes for listeners. I think if I look back in my career, like going to conferences has been really influential in the direction I've taken. I'm, I'm guessing it's the same for you. Yeah, in fact, I kind of two learnings out of that that uh, I thought were kind of profound for me was a conference is so much more than just a bunch of talks. And uh, I think it kind of crystallized the notion that great adventures demand great collaborators, or maybe it's even the other way around. Great collaborators lead to great adventures. <laughs> so it's all about the company we keep. Oh, I completely agree. Completely agree. So a traditional first question on the podcast team is about developer experience, like the kind of coding, testing, delivery, observation, that kind of thing. I always ask, and you, you know, protect the guilty and the innocent here, but can you describe what you've seen as your worst developer experience? Oh my gosh, where do I start? Uh, three come to mind. Can, can I do like one yeah, of them? Rock on. Yeah, so for 20 plus years, I've self-identified as an ops person. And this is despite getting my graduate degree in compiler design and high-speed networking. It was my observation that it was ops where the saves were made. It was ops who saved us from terrible developers, ops that protected data because it wasn't the security people for sure. And yet uh, for now four years, I really self-identify not as an ops person, but as a developer. And it, it's because I learned Clojure, this you know amazing functional program language that runs on the JVM or in uh, JavaScript. But And so what has been amazing is just uh, I've become very fussy as a result of <laughs> that. There's things I used to do 10 years ago that I think I used to get enjoyment out of that I now despise. So like three things come to mind. One was, and this is probably about six years ago, we were on vacation 
I want I budgeted 30 minutes to make what like a two line change to a, a Ruby on Rails app, and it took me I think seven hours <laughs> because oh, I, no. I couldn't push into Heroku because of like some gem file local something something right <laughs> like oh, no. uh, yeah. I mean, it just was uh yeah 30 minutes turned to seven hours and that's happened to I mean I think that's the common thread where. I just want to do one thing and you get sort of tangled up into something in the environment or dependencies and it's so far removed from what I actually want to do. Uh, I think that the uh, second story that comes to mind, um, one time I wrote an app to do Trello card management and I was it was just so glorious writing it in Clojure. I could just get leverage all of the Java libraries and then you know, it would use OAuth. As if, but I mean, I, I built so much functionality in two weeks. I mean, it was just, it felt like, uh, you know, like, uh, super heroic just the amount of stuff i could get done and then it was time to run it you know in the cloud right and i was trying to push to heroku and just trying to get oauth running but I, I couldn't even get there it took me a week where i just uh, like you know mired in yaml files and uh, i can't even remember right yeah, how to get keys in the right place and uh, it's just all the stuff that yeah. you know getting oh, there's gosh. callbacks in there things like that I'm getting the callbacks all wrong oh, like, oh my gosh yeah right right <laughs> and each time it would take seven minutes to to test out it's just a horrible horrible feeling right the oauth was the fun part no in fact daniel oauth getting oauth running was the fun part like, yeah the six days prior to that <laughs> like <laughs> not so much right <laughs> not, not so much fun right uh and like oauth is never fun just to show you how terrible it was and i'll say the third one is you know you know that first story about ruby and rails right i mean docker i mean that's where i got docker religion i just never wanted to do that ever again in my life but then you know it became my first experience running in kubernetes i mean that was Ooh, interesting yeah kubernetes is the toughest thing i've ever learned i mean <laughs> I watched John Willis, you know, do stuff. And it was actually our mutual buddy Flynn at DataWire. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. He would show me how to get a shell running inside of a uh, Kubernetes cluster. And I would sit down and try to do it myself. And I wouldn't even know what to Google for, right? I just, mm. <laughs> like, cube, cube control, then what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's just, uh, of all, like, that That makes Heroku look fun. <laughs> and just, uh, it's just, you know, just. I would add that to my list of things I just never want to do again. It's just uh, I never wake up in the morning, you know, aspiring to write Kubernetes deployment files or trying to connect things with sidecars and so forth. I mean, there it's an engineering miracle. It is great, but uh, holy cow, it's just uh, yeah, there. It, it's a lot to take in, and it's on a scale of one to ten for fun. <laughs> it's like a negative twelve. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, does that do any of these resonate with you? Or I, I don't think they I'm a I'm they a... do totally they do i was actually curious one of my notes here gene is because i'm a java programmer by trade that's my native language i've done a whole bunch of stuff on the jvm but i've not done much closure and i was thinking like with closure that using say a REPL, like the read eval oh, yeah. print loop that must be super good for getting a fast kind of feedback loop going oh my god yeah in fact i did something the other day that i have actually not done in like 10 years uh you're talking about the oauth callback problem right it's like oh i got the url point in the right wrong place you know how do i change it you know did i do I need to change in Google Cloud or whatever? So yeah, it was seven minute cycles to sort of build test on Heroku and then seven more minutes, uh, one, uh, three minutes to build test and then three minutes to actually push it into Kubernetes. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, how, how can you, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, right? And all you have is trial and error, seven minutes per iteration is soul killing. So I spun up a raw VM in, in my case, it was a uh, Google Cloud and, and I was actually running the web server with a REPL in it, uh, just on the uh, raw VM. And it was just amazing because then with a REPL, you could change it you know, yeah. within seconds, right? And when, yeah, you wouldn't yeah. have to restart the, you know, you wouldn't even have to deal with the, you know, 11 second uh, startup time. So that was a magical experience. So yeah, 
closure is amazing because it really is a dynamic language with all the things that you expect in a REPL where you can just, you know, hit one command, you know, one key press, right? And uh, basically reload your entire state or everything. I'll reload your code and the state remains the same. Uh, it's mm. just awesome. Every developer listening would recognize when you can get that fast feedback loop. We'll talk about more about this later on, Gene, back to the, the five ideals of the Unicorn project. But that flow, that speed, once you get into the zone, it is a magical moment as a developer, right? No, absolutely. Like, yeah, so like in the JavaScript world, but like when you <laughs> can actually get the dev tooling to work and you get, actually get hot code <laughs> reloading, it is you yeah, know, magical, yeah. right? I mean, that was like a stunning moment. And, and so you know, with the JVM, right, you can get the same thing. And with the REPL, right, you are literally talking about you know, millisecond feedback times per iteration. And it's just a, a magical experience and i think the people who came from the small talk background i mean i think they just immediately you know they've been saying i've been we've known this for decades and, and uh, uh your vp of engineering told me the same thing i i believe once you experience that it is really tough to go back and even deal with like compile times and uh, <laughs> rerunning executables it's just uh i have no interest in that yeah it totally makes sense but before we, uh, we dive into some of the unicorn project content how important do you think the developer experience is in the grander scheme of things, such as, you know, DevOps and delivering value? Because oh, yeah. I don't see many people talking about the actual, the first mile, if you like, of developer experience. Right. Um, <laughs> just uh, catching some of the Microsoft Build conference, right? And uh, there was a, I tweeted out two things that just uh, struck me. The first one was a uh, core competency shouldn't have to be being able to run two Python versions on your laptop. <laughs> just like, yes, yeah, like, completely agree. So yeah. Hard, right? And then the second one was like, it's hard to call yourself a world-class engineering shop if it takes three days to onboard a developer. And so I think dev productivity is so important. In fact, I mean, so much of the Unicorn Project was really to try to capture those sensibilities yes. of one, how much joy and flow and focus you can get when you have the right dev productivity tools. And the second thing is that I tried to convey in the Unicorn Project was this kind of weird inversion of values, right? And if you take a look at the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Googles, Microsofts, you know, they put their best people on dev productivity, Google famously puts 1,500 developers of the most senior developers, often with PhDs, on dev productivity. That's a billion dollars to spend a year. And then they put the next best developers on the backend APIs. And then the most, you know, maybe the most junior developers on features. Whereas in most enterprise shops, right, it's the opposite. They put their best developers on the features or the app, right, because you can yeah. see them. The next best developers on the backend. And then, you know, there's some are interns on dev productivity and build tools, right? And so. Uh, yeah, sadly true. So, yeah, I mean, and, you know, when I was at Tripwire, I was there for 13 years as a uh, CTO and founder. I mean, I, I did the same thing, right? In 2006, our cruise control server broke uh, that ran oh, our yeah. CI systems. And we didn't replace that. We left that position unfilled for tw 18 months <laughs> because we didn't put value in it. And so, yeah, our, our code integration times from, from like a week at the end of the project to uh, six weeks. And, <laughs> and so wow. we couldn't ship releases as frequently as wanted to but uh, you know that link between cause and effect wasn't obvious at the time so yeah i think dev productivity is is so important and it's i think it's what makes the difference it really is what differentiates you know compounding technical debt versus using compounding interest in your favor where you're just making developers more productive every day yeah, well said, Gene. Uh, I think that's a perfect segue actually into talking more about your latest book, The Unicorn Project. Uh, the data wire team and I have very much enjoyed reading this. In fact, it's now one of our onboarding essential reads for all, all new hires, alongside Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team and Basecamp Shape Up, too. I'm guessing some listeners haven't had a chance to read The Unicorn Project yet, and so could you provide a quick executive summary for us, please? 
Yeah, yeah. So it's it's uh, set in the same timeline as uh, the Phoenix Project, but instead of being told from the ops leadership perspective, it's really told through the eyes of Maxine, you know, a uh, an amazing developer who's exiled because of the payroll outage is blamed on her, <laughs> you know, uh, unjustly, and is uh, exiled to the Phoenix Project. And it's just it was really you know so much of that personal horror stories of you know my worst developer experience it is like Maxine's <laughs> life, right? And it's yes. amazing to me that you know you can take the best developer and you put them in a situation where there's no dev tooling she can't, you know, she yeah. can't do builds she can't write tests she can't write run tests she can't deploy she can't get yeah. and she can't even get the help she needs you know that mythical 10x developer is now like robinson crusoe or tom uh hanks in the movie cast away where you know can get nothing done and and, and so the organization is hiring uh you know they have scores of dev contractors who are just you know, idling away right? because, you know, they can't do the most basic thing that developers should be able to do on their first day. So, so the mechanism to sort of frame that kind of way out is really the five ideals, which is just really framed from my experience as like sh showing the best and worst of being a developer. And the first is like locality and simplicity. The second is focus, flow, and joy. The third is improvement of daily work. The fourth is psychological safety. And the fifth is customer focus. And it's just really meant to evoke the emotions of how good good is when all of those sort of tools are there to help support developers and the culture and architecture and how bad bad is <laughs> yeah. right. i think any developer reading the book gene will totally empathize with it as in i've worked in startups i've worked in larger organizations i worked for the uk government for a while and i can recognize dysfunctions in all of those organizations but generally the bigger the organization the more i could identify with that book yeah, and that's a shame, right? Because I think one of the, the lessons for me is, you know, it's not small beats big, it's fast beats slow. And so big and fast can decimate the competition. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's the greatness that large complex organizations who have the market, the customers, the channel relationships, I mean, those are the ones that have absolutely the potential to uh, win in the marketplace. And and so I think you know, hopefully the, the, the Unicorn Project can highlight kind of what's missing right yeah i think one of the key things for me from the phoenix project and many other things is that awareness that i've done consulting over the years and folks often didn't know what good looked like yeah i mean and the phoenix project gave them an insight back when i was consulting i used to you know hand out the phoenix project and they were like wow like is this really possible and i'm like no it seriously is but you have to invest in it yeah. but i think folks just don't know what good looks like sometimes yeah, well, for sure. And, and and I think that's what the narrative fiction format or the business fable format is so effective at because you, know, you, you can tell the story in very broad brushstrokes on a very large canvas. And in the Phoenix Project and the Unicorn Project, I mean, it follows a similar format of the sort of like the hero's journey, right, where, you know, you spend yeah, a, yeah. a third of the book really painting the desolation of how bad that <laughs> is right? <Yeah. laughs> and, to, and to explore every nook and cranny of it you know, to, to really kind of uh, evoke that, you know, a feeling of like holy cow this is me regardless of yeah. whether you're a <laughs> developer or a qa or ops or information security or the product owner or the business leader or whatever right and uh i, I think that's kind of a luxury you have uh that you know you can't really do in a non-fiction format or you can but it, it you know you can't fire the mirror neurons to the extent yeah. you can with a with a story like five dysfunctional team when i read that book I remember exactly when it was. I was on a plane. I remember having to close the book a couple of times, and I could even smell, you know, that nervousness you feel. Like, <laughs> and the stress yeah. response. I mean, it was just, I wanted to throw the book across the airplane cabin. It was just so 
uh, traumatizing to read. <laughs> yeah, the best books, same like best TV series, I find, is the ones that do drive emotions. Even as techies, we still are emotional creatures, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, even for writing the Unicorn Project, I was actually uh, reading a lot of screenwriting books just to, yeah, because oh, here's a, a craft of really telling stories, and there's a a trope that I used. Uh, it was called "All Hope Is Lost." <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> imagine the hero's journey where you know you go to the you go through the depth of despair and then the uh, climb to ascendancy. The "All Hope Is Lost" is what happens at the very end where you think you've won, <laughs> but then <laughs> the second Death Star shows up. It's like yeah. oh no, and then all your buddies die. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so it's, there's that that's a vocation that and a craft that has spent you know centuries right honing yeah. you know the tools oh, yeah. to evoke emotions. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, the, the book, the, the Unicorn Project, was fantastic. I wouldn't mind to dive into a couple of the ideals, Gene, because like, oh, they sure. definitely they were really, really useful. And, and the first one that jumped out to me and you and I were talking a little bit off mic about this, the first ideal being locality and simplicity. I think it's been a lot of good efforts in the community over the last few years. We have microservices sort of, you know, decomposing your code base. We have Kubernetes, you know, specializing in sort of ephemeral hardware. But actually, I find sometimes it feels like it's got harder and there's more <laughs> dependencies not less yeah yeah um for, for sure right so that's what i was really trying to speak to in the first two ideals right the first one is locality and simplicity and this is really what i learned from uh well, in fact, from Rich Hickey, who is the creator of the Closure programming language. And so uh, the locality and simplicity, it's, it's, I, I love to simplify it down to the lunch factor. Uh, when you want to get something done, how many people do you need to take out to lunch? Is it, oh, you know, interesting. Is it the Amazonian yeah. ideal of the two-pizza team, right, where they can independently do what the customer needs without any external dependencies, right, because of partitioning be- between domains, right, and uh, architectures that allow small teams to independently build, test, and deploy value to customers. Mm-hmm. So that's a lunch factor of, you know, two pizzas uh, versus in most <laughs> architectures, you know, it's like 40 teams, right? You kind of yeah, buy pizzas for the entire building, right, to deploy. And, and so that is really says to what degree can we build and test and deploy our components in isolation, right? To what degree can we uh, write the features we need, right, without having to, you know, use integrated test environments and, and so mm-hmm. forth. So for sure that, and, and my own personal experience of that is even these uh, kind of event sourcing architectures, you know, using PubSub is dramatically increases simplicity and composability of, of components that, you know, I think is really kind of the core of uh, uh, domain-driven design where you can actually change small mm-hmm. pizza systems independently from everyone else. I mean, I get that decoupling. <laughs> exactly. And I think those are the conditions when you can, have small lunch factors, you know, build test things in isolation. That's how you can actually, as a developer, have that feeling of focus, flow, uh, and just joy in your work. And so much of that is inspired by Dr. Cheeksent Mihalyi, who wrote the oh, yeah, book Flow. Yeah, the psychology of optimal experience. And uh, just the best description is imagine yourself in a time when you're having so much. Uh, fulfillment and joy out of your work that you lose sense of time and maybe even sense of self yeah, <laughs> right? the transcendental yeah. experience so so you can't do that if you have a horrible architecture that you can't do anything without calling 40 different meetings and getting mm-hmm. all of them to say yes <laughs> so so yeah so all of that is you know certain architecture microservices are a part of that but holy cow right if it means <laughs> that you now have you know in the case of netflix right 1800 different services yeah, a lot. Uh, it is a lot and you know that without the right kind of greatness and architecture and tooling around all that, that that's a pretty horrible experience if everyone has to know Kubernetes, right? <laughs> Agreed. Yes, yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, it totally makes sense. What's your thoughts? Look, over the, the years we've had DevOps, we've had a lot of other things popping up like site reliability engineering, kind of coined by the Google folks. Yeah. A couple of fantastic books there. Um, we've even had things like, say, GitOps, the WeWorks team. We've been following them for many years, loving yeah. what they're doing around sort of declarative config and this control loop and so forth. What's your thoughts in all these sort of new practices that have popped up, like SRE, and all these new implementations of GitOps? How do they kind of marry into to DevOps, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for DevOps in general, but I mean, I feel like I think they're all very exciting. And, and to me, what they have in common, well, <laughs> one of the things they have in common is this notion of how do you take kind of functional expertise like uh, SRE and infrastructure and operations and security and QA and get it out of people's heads and put them into a platform where anyone using the platform can leverage all the greatness. Yep. You know, just if you run it on the platform, you inherit the best known understanding of how to solve certain problems safely, securely, uh, reliably, you know, without actually having to know it all, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Without yeah. having to read a Kubernetes deployment file. By the way, it sounds like I'm trashing Kubernetes. It's amazing. <laughs> it's an engineering miracle. I, I use it for yeah. my own production code, but wow, right? You know, just uh, sometimes a reminder of like how, how bad it can be. I have a screenshot of my search history on Google, right? It's like you know, <laughs> trying to find, you know, how do I make this? Coop cuttle this. Coop yeah, exactly, that. right. And how to make a error message go away and, you know, because my YAML configuration files yeah, malformed. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. the book Team Topologies by uh, Matthew Skelton and Manuel Pace. I mean, just do, do such a great job in sort of painting, I think, how we really need, you know, infrastructure and operations, security, you know, how they should be structured so that they can elevate the state of the practice for the entire company, right? With knowledge, not in their heads, but in the tools they build and enable for others. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, like Matthew and Manuel, lucky enough to call buddies of mine. We know each other from the London tech scene and the conference scene. And when that book was published, I got the preview as a sneak peek. It's just fantastic. And I really like they pitched sort of stream aligned teams, I think it's enabling teams, complicated subsystem teams, and this platform team. And I really like your pitch there about the platform team is kind of the codification of all the good practices for running your apps. Is that, is that about right? Yeah, for sure. And I think what's also important, right, is that the mode of interaction is not tickets and it is about self-service and one of the things that i've done since the beginning of the year uh, is i've been having weekly calls with a, a mentor of mine dr stephen spear who wrote the most widely downloaded harvard business review of our all time called decoding the dna of the toyota production system which yeah. uh, was based on his phd doctoral dissertation at the harvard business school <laughs> which is based on his six months of working on the Toyota assembly line <laughs> for a tier one Toyota supplier. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, his thinking has influenced my work for going on seven years now. And one of the things that I'm really trying to understand is kind of this notion that he has is that there's really, when you talk about organizational dynamics, there's this kind of very parsimonious constructs he uses. You have basically structure and dynamics. So structure is really kind of how you organize teams it is the architecture you work within. And then there's dynamics, which is everything else. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's culture, it's signals. You know, is it fast feedback or no feedback? Is it a culture of fear where everyone is afraid to tell bad news? Or is it yep. amplified, right? Like safety culture at Alcoa. And it says that as leaders, uh, so much of the dominant knobs of which we really control are really about structure. And I think what Team Topologies really does is explain what are the teams, what are their interfaces, <laughs> right? What are the domains of responsibility that 
allow for these amazing ways of working that lead to better performance, better employee engagement, more productivity, you know, happiness, and, and so forth. So I'm actually restudying the work they did because I think they did, did such a splendid job in really defining kind of the structure of the organization and how it does result in you know vastly different dynamics than the old world where you know to deploy I need to talk to forty different teams <laughs> right to yeah, yeah. may not even know who I am. Well, definitely one thing as my career has progressed, I begin it's almost become a bit fractal in some of the things I see. Like I remember talking about coupling and cohesion in terms of software architecture. I can see that now in organizations too. And something you just said there, Gene, I was just thinking about I know I've chatted to Manuel and Matthew quite a bit about sort of APIs yeah. for teams. We spent as engineers, I like I've you know worked in Java, spent lots of time around API design, interface <laughs> design. But as a manager, I didn't really think about that so much with my team. You know, yeah, how my team is exposed to the rest of the organization. So I'm guessing there is there is knowledge that is transferable from, you know, an engineer to organizations. Very much so. In fact, I mean, this is kind of like biggest aha moment. So, I mean, here, here's a blows my mind. So Dr. Stephen Spear in the late 90s, he's working on his doctoral dissertation at Harvard Business School about the Toyota production system. And it turns out that one of the most formative influences on him is Dr. Carlos Baldwin, who wrote you know a lot of seminal works on code architecture, modularity, who is also one of the biggest influences on someone I'm a huge fan of, Dr. Mick Kirsten, you know, who wrote the project to product book. And so if you look, so, so like, that's a a genuine, what the F moment, right? It's like two of the people who influenced me the most, Dr. Stephen Sphere, Dr. Mick Kirsten, were both influenced by Dr. Carlos Baldwin from two totally separate domains. And, and so- so he was talking about like how teams work together in Toyota and he was using the language of interfaces <laughs> and the uh, sequence and timing, right? Which is actually very, very close to how we talk about APIs, right? In terms of mm-hmm. uh, their agreed upon protocols. Uh, I give you this, yeah. you give me that, right? So I, I haven't all unpacked and processed it. In fact, it's something I'm doing in you know the next uh, couple of podcasts will be released that I'm doing called the Ideal Cast, interviewing Mike Nygaard on his views on architecture. Oh, yeah. Uh, Steve Spear <laughs> and Elizabeth Hendrickson. Just it is, I, I think, kind of that same insight that you had is some something that I've been thinking a lot about, which is organizational design actually has a lot in common with API design. And I think the Team Topologies book just really put their finger on it. And Agreed. it's exciting. It's exciting that architecture is so much more than how you know designing APIs. It is really the architecture of which the entire organizations work within to achieve goals and. Does it drive architecture drive us towards a lunch factor of you know three hundred, or does it drive us towards uh, the Amazonian ideal of two pizza teams that are, can all be advancing towards a business goal? Yeah, something I just wanted to pick up there, Eugene. You said I've definitely seen it from your work and and from John Willis's work as well. Is this cross pollination of ideas? So actually, my <laughs> post grad, I did I did post grad, and my professor was uh, we we're in computer <laughs> science, but he was a professor of biology, and he encouraged <laughs> me to read around biology, and I learned a lot. Of biological principles that I could apply to computing. And I think I see that in your work. In, and I remember listening to some podcasts by yourself and John Willis. This is kind of looking outside of computing to bring in interesting ideas to the field. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, <laughs> Steve Fira mentioned biology is kind of like a paragon of modularity, right? So it's, there you, know, you go. And yeah, totally. And I, I think to your point, I mean, I, I love this phrase that there are no new problems under the sun, just uh, old solutions applied to new domains, and it's typically the 
areas between domains that actually lead to the biggest breakthroughs. And, and so that would tend to explain where we're seeing the greatest kind of excitement and breakthroughs happening in technology, right? It's, it's infrastructure as code. It's, you know, GitOps being, you know, taking all these uh, you know, principles from software engineering and using them for infrastructure and more, uh, which affects developer productivity, right? It's, yeah, so it's, it's, I think I would agree with you. It, it is very exciting you know, to be able to have fellow travelers and friends and who are experts in different domains and to be able to learn from them. And, I, and it's, uh, for me, it's incredibly satisfying and intellectually stimulating and exciting to feel like, you know, there's something important there that we can bring to our respective professions. Yeah, well said, Jean. Well said. I want to just pick up on the third ideal for a moment. You mentioned about the third ideal being the improvement of daily work. And what I've seen from my career, like the the fan companies you mentioned, they're yeah. really good at this kind of paying down the debt, investing in developer experience. I work with some kind of more traditional organizations, you know, big market caps, doing very cool stuff. Yeah. But I had a hard time convincing te- uh, leadership, <laughs> senior leadership, to invest in this kind of thing. And I think it was because they weren't really tech savvy or not to the level you would probably see in the leadership of Facebook, Google, you know, take your pick. What's your experience been around that? And have you got any advice for folks? You know, if you're in, say, my position, you're trying to convince perhaps your leadership to, yeah. to invest more in this. Yeah, I, I think that's the toughest. Not, not, I think my most recent thinking on this is that it's, it's because they're using a bad way of thinking. And I think the great book Project Product shows that, you know, this is what you get when, you know, IT technology is part of a cost center and <laughs> they're using project management as a primary way to make decisions. And and so technical debt is very difficult to talk about when you don't have a, a project code to assign it against. Right? Yes, and, it's, uh, yeah. and, you know, you have these large planning cycles where, you know, it's always too late and it's very difficult to make you know, long-term rational decisions when pr- the project management approval process, budgeting, right, just sort of drives you to a certain way of, you know, thinking and doing. And so kind of the Part of the goal of the Unicorn Project was to highlight kind of how good good is, not just from dev productivity and tooling, but just its impact on developers doing daily work. And for me, the the dazzling book that I stumbled into, which I'd rank as one of the two best books I've read in the last decade, is uh, Transforming Nokia by Risto Salasma. It's oh, just like this that one. lovely, yeah. amazing book. And mm-hmm. you know, I'll be honest, my first reaction is like, what are we going to learn from you know uh, the story of how this person contributed to the tanking of nokia yeah, <laughs> <Right>? yeah. <laughs> but it is a stunning book i mean he oh, he joined the board of nokia in 2007 he has this unflinching analysis of his own sort of shortcomings as he couldn't overcome the sort of domineering characteristics of the board chair uh, but the the shocker to me i mean it was just this uh, marvelous you know candid book about group dynamics um that i think is relevant to any leader but then you know in terms of technical debt, right? He describes how in 2009, he learned from the VP of strategy that the build times for the Symbian OS was taking them two days. Oh, <laughs> wow. Said, yeah, yeah. He was the founder of F-Secure, right? He's a technical person. He said, it felt like being hit in the head with a sledgehammer because <laughs> if it takes two days for any developer to know whether the code worked or would have to be redone, this thing that all their dreams, hopes, and aspirations are hinging upon, it's an illusion. It doesn't exist, right? And that led them to go to Windows Mobile, which didn't treat them so well. It it dragged them into the grave, but that was actually a better bet than staying on Symbian OS. Mm. So I found it dazzling because he saw that at the board level about dev productivity. And and so I think that, you know, we'll be in a just world, right? That will be candid conversations at every large market cap organization talking about digital disruption. 
should yes. be talking about. So, yeah, I, I think that book does so much to talk about how important it is for any organization that's doing anything in technology. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope uh, so. You know, in the book, that book is referenced, and I, I just would recommend that book to anybody. And by the way, then he then he tells the inside story of selling the company to Microsoft for like $7 billion, even though they were probably 60 days away from declaring bankruptcy. Wow. <laughs> wow. Story on culture as, you know, he then led Nokia into the uh, switching space and uh, is actually one of the few companies actually gaining market share against uh, Huawei. So it's just a ah, neat, neat book. Yeah, very nice. Dude. We, we, I don't want to like ignore the fourth and fifth ideals. Um, it was interesting. So the psychological safety, I know that's been super important in my career and customer focus. We hear a lot of folks talk about that. How come you put psychological safety and customer focus as four and five rather than perhaps one or two, which some Amazon, for example, I would think yeah. would put customer focus as number one. Yeah. I love the notion of the concentric circles of areas of control areas of influence and area of concern. <laughs> and that, that, that was just kind of the way I thought about it and kind of like what outcomes result from, you know, what, and the, that's what kind of led the order. But I think kind of there's oh, okay. also, you know, another person yeah. asked like, why is customer focus last, right? I mean, shouldn't that yeah. really come first as you mentioned? And, uh, you know, the conclusion <laughs> that we came up with that uh, I think we both thought was delightful was that it's it's really from my mind, I mean, until you can get your crap in order, like <laughs> why why talk about the customer, right? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> Interesting. Um, it really is, or to paraphrase my friend Peter Moore, who is famous for many things, but he's also the brother of Dr. Joffrey Moore, author of Zone to Win and Crossing the Chasm. He said, oh, yeah, great books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, until you tackle, you know, internal architecture and improvement of daily work, right? You, you don't belong at the table, right? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, uh, yeah, get yeah. your crap in order first, and then you can talk about like being at the table, right? And contributing to the grandest goals of the organization. So uh, <laughs> if I, I just like that. It uh, just shows what it takes to be a, an effective technology leader. Yeah, and I remember reading a Harvard Business Review some time ago about saying companies, you, you need execution, the ability mm-hmm. to execute as well as a good strategy. And in fact, if you have a good strategy with no execution, you're going to go nowhere. Right. Yeah, exactly. And in my mind, it was just very important to put kind of the things that we can control the most first. And then, you know, I think the from a narrative perspective, the whole notion of customer focus leads to core and context. Core are those core competencies that uh, create lasting, durable business advantage that customers are willing to pay for versus context, which is everything else. It could be mission critical, but customers really don't care. So world-class payroll services, <laughs> world-class expense reporting, important <laughs> maybe, but maybe not something that customers actually are willing to pay a premium for if that's not what they're buying. So just the idea of saying, yeah, we built all this great dev tooling and now we have a, a shaky CI system servers that are falling down and they're crashing because of a... <laughs> hardware fans going out or something you know, that does big questions like okay is this something that is a core competency or is this something that we really should be relying on a vendor on right <laughs> because it's their core yeah. competency so from a narrative perspective it just kind of felt like uh, the right place thanks and that's just really good context and it makes complete sense with, to with the target audience in mind um you've mentioned some fantastic references i'll put these all in the show notes so listeners can dive in a bit more detail i've definitely took a couple of references that i haven't heard before so i'll be following <laughs> up on them which is awesome but if people want to uh, follow your work online gene what's the best way yeah uh, probably the best way to reach me is on twitter i'm real gene kim and uh, my dms are open just uh, twitter is probably the best place super thanks for your time today gene Oh, thank you so much and look forward to seeing you soon and hopefully at the DevOps Enterprise Virtual Summit coming up at the end of June. Well, I've been to a couple and they've been fantastic. I've learned so much from them. So I'm going to give them a shout out too. Please do go along to Dean's conference. The DevOps Enterprise Summit is fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you so much. 